All right, good evening to everyone. We are uh, beginning our new session in the School of Theology. Welcome to everyone. We're glad, we're glad to have you. Uh, we had a little debate today with all the rain uh, and the flood. You know, the rain came down and the waters went up, and we wondered whether we'd be able to hold this tonight, but we thought we'll go ahead and try, and the, uh, the results will be in the recording uh, that, Lord willing, we'll have posted online in another day or two so that uh, folks who've missed it are able to get it. Well, this is another session of the School of Theology. It's a ministry of Christ Church, which is intended to uh, hold up the Word of God in a systematic teaching of it uh, as a blessing to those here in this local area, not only in our congregation but beyond. And uh, we're delighted to have you here. Our main textbook is uh, Bite-Sized Theology by Peter Jeffrey, and uh, that's available here if anyone uh, uh, still needs a copy for a fiver. Uh, we will this evening be doing an introduction uh, to the study of the doctrine of Scripture, and then we'll begin looking at uh, revelation in its two kinds, general revelation on the one hand, and dip our toe into special revelation on the other. And as we come to this time, let's do so prayerfully before the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we ask for your blessing upon us. Uh, we ask that your word, which your Holy Spirit has inspired and breathed out through the Holy prophets and apostles of old, uh, would be illumined now by that same Holy Spirit, that you would bless it to us, uh, that we might come to think your thoughts after you. Help us, we pray, O God, to have the mind of Christ, and so give you honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Here is our sign-up sheet, and uh, you can check your name off or add it there to the end. All right, uh, we are still waiting on Dr. Stacy to arrive, uh, and I trust that by uh, about 50 minutes from now he will have arrived, uh, even if he has to swim. So uh, we, remember, we will remember him in prayer. Well, we come to the study of the doctrine of Scripture. Last time we were together in our previous course, we looked at the study of theology, and I just want to remind you in broad outline of what we covered Uh, that the study of theology is something that we do because we love the Lord and because He first loves us. And to study theology well, we have to, first of all, have a relationship with the Lord. Uh, It's not a dry, abstract subject that you can uh, keep up on a dusty shelf, a bunch of old books that mean nothing to your own life. Rather, to study God is to study theology, and you need a relationship with Him first. Both Calvin, the great reformer, And B.B. Warfield, the great Princetonian, emphasized the reality of the importance of the religious life of someone who is studying the topic of theology. And so where we stand before the Lord is an important uh, prerequisite question for us to answer as we think together about God. And we also saw in our previous uh, course that uh, there are different topics in theology, Scripture uh, being the first of them, Scripture, God, man, Christ, salvation, uh, the church and last things are the major broad loci or topics in theology. And normally they're arranged in just that kind of progressive topical order. And, and the reason for this is rooted deep in church history, uh, going all the way back to St. Patrick and his writing of his book called Patrick's Places, uh, where he looked at the study of theology around different topics and arranged them uh, in that basic order. But, but that's a logical order. It goes from uh, what we know of God through Scripture to what uh, God speaks to us of his triune nature. 
uh, to what God speaks to us of himself and the rest of the created order. Uh, and then in our sin and misery and our fall uh, as human beings, men and women and boys and girls, our need of a Savior is felt. And so we study the person of Christ on the one hand and the work of Christ on the other. And it progresses in this way through all of systematics. However, that kind of uh, standard loci, that classical approach, is not the only way in which to study theology. We have to also lay on top of that the fact that each topic is interrelated. The study of Christology involves the two natures of Christ, his divinity and his humanity. So unless you know about God on the one hand and man on the other, you really can't understand about Christ, the, the Savior, the one mediator between God and man. And so these interconnections and this cross-fertilization of our understanding as one topic sheds light on another helps us to understand theology more. But there are also unique topics in theology. The Trinity, for example, is unparalleled uh, in its de- uh, not only deployment in the field of theology, but also just the simple fact of it. There's no other religion uh, with a triune God, three in one, one in three, with that triune nature being the point where uh, unity and diversity uh, find their ultimate fount in the universe. And another uh, very important and unique topic is that of the Incarnation. Uh, the Son of God takes on flesh and dwells among us. There's no other religion uh, other than uh, biblical Christianity with a proper incarnation, a proper divinity to which is added a human body and a human soul. And the fact that this, one, this man is indeed our Savior, the one mediator between God and man, uh, means that he's relevant to every aspect of our salvation. And the incarnation is as well. It's a pattern. For example, in studying the doctrine of Scripture, we're going to see what's called the Christological analogy, that the Scripture has both divine aspect and human aspect, that it has a divine author and also human authors inspired by the Holy Spirit, and that the underlying pattern for how that functions in our life is rooted back in the incarnation in Jesus Christ. And all the way through, the Bible is important because it's foundational to our understanding of what God is like. Even in our definition of theology, we have to remember uh, that we are coming to know God, to know him better, uh, to have fellowship with him. Uh, We could uh, wax eloquent in those traditional terms. To know him is to love him, (laughs) and to love him is to know him. There's a real truth about relationships there and particularly a relationship with God where to know about him is to know about the one who has created all things and who is the sovereign Lord and who continues to uphold all of creation and in his divinity unfolds by his divine decree every aspect of our lives. Oh, to know the Lord uh, is uh, the greatest blessing we can ever have. It's not an abstract study of science in some naked sense. It is as Professor James Henley Thornwell said, the science uh, of religion, not a frozen formalism, but a science of religion in which true piety is its result. And so all theology is a knowledge about God that he says animates the soul and makes a difference for us from creation uh, to uh, the fact of the Trinity itself and the Lord's relationship with us in a triune way, Uh, the giving of the law which the Lord does through his uh, prophet Moses, uh, as well as Christ's love of his bride, the church. All of this uh, is how we know about God, but particularly as he speaks through the prophets and apostles of old, so that as we read his word, 
we're not reading just dry words, but we are reading a word which is living and true and sure and makes a difference to our souls. We noted last uh, class together that um, the study of theology is inherently personal because God is our creator and we're his creatures. And so he inevitably relates to us on a personal level, but not just as an individual to an individual in a triune way. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So he has fellowship within himself, and he has fellowship therefore with us not only as an individual, but also in pairs and in a group of three. Uh, God the Father and Son relate to us. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relate to us. We relate to God, and there the basic dynamics of the one and the many spill over into our lives and into the created order. And so we're not alone. And we're not alone with an undifferentiated monad with just one thing that uh, uh, we um, can have no multidimensional relationship with, but with a triune God. And we saw that the Bible shows and demonstrates that the study of theology is propositional. God speaks to us. He's not just personal. Uh, It's not just an emotional relationship with no language. There's actually language and meaning. It's propositional. Those propositions have been preserved in the Scriptures. And so the study of theology ought to be biblical, uh, based upon the Word of God written, which we're examining in this course. And therefore, if the Word of God is written for us, we need to exegete it. We need to understand it. We, We need to be under it and listen to it. We need to take the grammar, the language and the grammar and the structure and syntax seriously so that we think God's thoughts after him rather than taking the Bible and inflicting upon it what we mean or wish it would say. You know, a child can take their parents' words. Do not eat a cookie from the jar. And they can take those words and with their bag of childish hermeneutical tricks they can take that word, those words and stand them on their head. And they can have a cookie in their hand and partly in their mouth and be happy as a clam thinking that they completely obeyed what their mother instructed them. Or if mother says, go clean, their, go clean your room, you can turn that on your head by analyzing that language and making it mean not what she meant, but what you mean by it, what you wish she had said or wish she had meant. And you can twist and turn her words and sit uh, in the pigsty until she comes back uh, to confront you for your disobedience. In the same way, we do exegesis. We draw the meaning from the text, what God's intention is, what his human authors that he's carried along and inspired intend, rather than just twisting it to mean whatever we happen to be happy with. And in that study of the scriptures, that textual study, uh, we have the blessing and benefit of the Holy Spirit who inspired the word, and also he is the one who continues Uh, to apply it to us and so uh, help us understand. Uh, We can understand or study theology in a historical sense. We're not the first ones to ever encounter this book or this God, triune. And so we stand on one another's shoulders. And that's why we have in the syllabus a number of different textbooks that we have uh, available and that we commend to you uh, for your study, not just uh, Peter Jeffrey's work, but also J.I. Packer, Concise Theology, is an excellent text to uh, get your teeth into. If you haven't read Donald McLeod, you have a treat coming. Uh, Donald has a, a wonderful little book here that's an overview of theology called uh, Faith to Live By, Understanding Christian Doctrine. And uh, I got an email today from a, um, uh, from a brother who works with an international mission agency and does theological education by extension. And he sent me a short uh, email and he said, 
Give me a short one-volume book on the Trinity that gives a historical presentation of the importance of the doctrine. And I fired back Donald McLeod's book, Shared Life, would be the one I would recommend. Uh, very well written. The man's original language is not English. It's Gallic. But uh, he writes not only theological textbooks, but in article magazines and newspapers. And so I commend his work to you. Uh, Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology is a, uh, a giant volume. Uh, you can hold doors open with this in your home. And uh, it's encyclopedic. It's like uh, reading a recipe book or the Encyclopedia Britannica, uh, which is no mean thing to do. Uh, and as you're looking at the topic uh, of our particular course, the Doctrine of Scripture, the, the first hundred pages of this combined volume is on that topic, and so I commend it to you. Heinrich Heppe's book, Reformed Dogmatics, is a great compilation of some of the finest minds from the time of the Reformation to the time of the Westminster Assembly, both on the continent and in Britain, and there's even an American or two uh, to be snuck in here. So I, I commend to you this volume uh, in its treatment of uh, the topic of systematic theology, particularly on the doctrine of Scripture. And then we have uh, two great ones. Uh, the one that uh, we unreservedly always recommend, it would be a sin not to, is John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. Uh, if, you, uh, if you've never read the Institutes before, you have a treat in store. Uh, one time I had a dear, uh, dear brother who was a student uh, that I was teaching, and he had a, um, a relative who married into the family, uh, who only knew French and English. And uh, she was from a Muslim country that will remain nameless. And uh, she had married a relative of his. And so she came uh, to uh, the U.S. and stayed in his home. And she wanted to learn English. And so where do you begin? She knew no English. They knew no French. And so they put two books in her hands. One was a copy of the Bible with English on one page and French on the other. And the other was, was a copy of uh, Calvin's Institutes in French and a copy in English translation. And uh, partway through her time of learning language, after reading about half of each volume, uh, she got saved and was baptized. So uh, this work, book has had a very interesting uh, impact on the church down through the years. It was written uh, not only for scholars, but also for the folks in the pew to understand and have the framework of thinking through which to interpret the Bible. So I commend Calvin's Institutes without reservation. And then Villamus Abreckel, we're using this four-volume set along and along and have uh, 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 the content of this course in the first volume. Uh, Abreckel's not the most... Uh, He's not the most pretty theologian to ever live. Uh, he's sort of a homely-looking guy, but he has a beautiful pen. And uh, he speaks to our hearts, even as he's dealing with technical matters. So I commend uh, that volume, The Christian's Reasonable Service, to you. It's available in PDF, free on the Internet. Just Google it, and you'll find it easily. And we have Calvin's Institutes over in room 102, if anybody would like to uh, see it afterwards. Uh, very good. So the point here is is that we have uh, many uh, folks with which to dialogue. I have about a 5,000-volume library, and when the family and I were here and the library was not yet here, I was bereft of all of my friends, and now they have arrived, and uh, they're easily accessible. I commend to you that kind of thinking about standing on the shoulders of other Christians that have come before. And then with all this tiny print, uh, we also finally noted that the study of theology was contextual, that is, that we study the theology in a particular context historically ourselves, particular culture. And our culture is in, uh, saturated with individualism and secularism and pluralism and relativism, etc. 
And these have an impact on us as we study theology. We do well to remember that we tend to miss the corporate lessons of the text, although we catch on immediately to the individualist ideas. We tend to twist and change the meaning and intent of the text uh, in a way that is relativist in ethics, whereas God's word is uh, very clear and normative. And so tonight, uh, we begin our study of the transition of the study of theology to the doctrine of Scripture. And that means we have to remember that God, the God who speaks to us, the God who doesn't leave us alone, uh, but who rather uh, gives us His Son, His Son who is fully God and fully man, who's truly human as well as truly divine. And so He speaks to us in true words, true truth, as Schaefer put it, so helpfully to our culture. He speaks to us in human language uh, about himself and about his heavenly Father. And so we know that God speaks and we do well to listen. And the Word of God reveals to us that he speaks in two ways. God speaks to us through the realm of nature on the one hand and through his prophets and apostles of old on the other. Uh, It's as if God speaks to us in stereo. Uh, As he speaks to us through the created order, he is telling us something about himself as we look around in the world. And as we see trees and grass and rain and more rain and more rain as we've had today, we see that God is all-powerful. We see that he is the one who is able to create the storm and still the storm. Uh, We see that he is the one who reveals something of his divine nature to us even through the created order. We we stare in the mirror and we see something of creation looking back at us. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are made in the image of God. You image God body, soul, mind, and spirit, if I can emphasize it that way. And therefore, you even see testimony of God uh, as you're putting on your makeup, as you're combing your hair, uh, as you uh, catch sight of yourself as you walk through the kitchen or the bathroom and a mirror points back to you. But beyond that, God speaks through his prophets and apostles of old. He speaks to us in uh, special ways about special things concerning salvation. And these two modes of God speaking to us, these two ways, uh, involve uh, subtle differences between the two, but uh, there's a reason here even for the color scheme. You know, the uh, pastor insisted that I use yellow and blue for some strange reason when it came to the color of divinity. I, I think that had something to do with football teams and uh, uh, that, that just looked better to him. Uh, and so I countered by using orange on the bottom uh, for a team uh, far out of state uh, that did fairly well in the bowl game, but I won't mention much more about that. <laughs> Through general revelation and special revelation, God speaks to us. It's the same God speaking, and so there's no fundamental tension or discontinuity between uh, these two uh, communications that come to us, uh, but they have come on different occasions and they have different purposes. Uh, and so, and they complement one another in our lives. We'll come back to this, uh, to this diagram a number of times tonight. So, we come to the first topic of general revelation. And that's because all of theology rests upon revelation. Uh, we don't have uh, a study of God without God speaking to us. 
Uh, if that's the case, we're just doing anthropology, you know, and that's what's happened in most of the major universities around the world today. Uh, the divinity departments are being absorbed into the religion departments. And as a specialized social science, and so they're all under the category of anthropology, men like to worship gods. And let me tell you all about the different kinds of religions there are in the world. And one of those will end up being Christianity. My experience is they fairly uh, do a fairly poor job of understanding uh, traditional uh, classic Christianity, biblical Christianity, but uh, be that as it may, they try. But if God speaks through nature to us, and if he speaks through his prophets and apostles especially, then there should be a unique place for the study of God, for the study of theology, for the study of divinity, as it's called. It should not be subsumed in the psychology department or in the sociology department. It's a separate area, a separate college, as it were, because that field is unique, because there is a subject out there who is communicating with us. I don't know if you've seen the um, uh, controversial uh, sci-fi-ish-y kind of movie, Contact, where uh, supposedly, you know, SETI uh, picks up signals from outer space and they build this machine to be able to communicate and travel to these people. And uh, were they really there? Did they, did they really communicate, etc.? But But what was absolutely clear was that there was a, re- a signal that was received and all sorts of complex information embedded in it. In the same way, um, by way of illustration, that points to the fact that God speaks to us, he communicates to us through the created order. But we don't need a, an array of uh, dishes and satellites to pick this up. God has made each one of us to be a dish or a satellite. He has made us in his image. And so we, as the high priests of creation, created by God to, to think about his world and to seek to understand it in light of who he is and who he's made us to be, even just on a creational level, he has made us to be receptors uh, of facts about him. And so we do well uh, in our study of theology to remember uh, that he is unique and that he uniquely communicates to us through the created order. I see a sunset. I see a mountain. I feel the waves crashing on the beach, and I learn about creation, and I learn about more than creation. Because through that, I hear... God revealing himself. God teaches us. He speaks to us through the created order. Even as the Apostle Paul says to us in Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that we are without excuse. All of theology is unique because all of theology is based upon God speaking to us. Revelation. God's self-revelation. He's the one who takes the initiative. It's not that he is utterly silent and we wake up one day and whistle up the, the mountain and say, hey, speak to us. Tell us about yourselves. Uh, it's not like calling a puppy to come and wag their tail. God is great. God is almighty. God is all sovereign and powerful. And from the beginning, 
he communicates to humankind that's made in his image. You were born with an innate knowledge of God because even as you were in your mother's womb, you were made in the image of God, being knit together, body and soul, growing until you take your first breath. You take your first breath knowing already things about God and having a capacity to communicate with him because of the way he made you to be. This means we have dignity. This means that we are to be honored in the sense that we're not trash. We're not disposable. Uh, We're not unimportant. Even the weakest of us is very important uh, and important to God. God communicates with us. What this means is that we receive these signals. And the reception of these signals clues us into the fact that there's something even deeper behind them than the signals themselves. There's God. God is there and He is not silent. He knows the universe because He made it. Inside out. Every, every quadrant, every centimeter, every micron He knows. And that means He knows you better than you know yourself. And that should be a comfort and encouragement to you uh, if you have trusted in his son. And it should be a terror to you and a warning if you haven't trusted in his son. Oh, God reveals himself to us. Out of God's infinite knowledge, he tells us a little bit of what he knows. That's amazing. You know, we look back on our experiences as we were growing up and our parents or our grandparents or Aunts and uncles or brothers and sisters, someone took us under their wing and they kind of told us how the world was, how things were, and how we are to be. And they are just tiny compared to your Heavenly Father, communicating to you, having built conscience in you, uh, a compass, a guide star with regard to what is right and what is wrong, having made you in His image. And through His whole created order telling you about Himself, that he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he's almighty. He's the sovereign Lord that, that you are overwhelmed on every aspect and level of your being with who he is. And so you learn about him because he has been so kind as to accommodate himself to you and to your weakness and to your misunderstandings and to your need. These two modes of revelation, general on the one hand and special on the other, uh, are important to us. And there has been a, a controversy down through the years in the study of theology about what labels to give to these. In the medieval period, they tended to give them the labels of um, uh, a form of revelation that was based upon creation, a form of revelation that was uh, not general, as in generally available, uh, but a form of revelation uh, that was supernatural. And so you had natural revelation on the one hand and supernatural on the other. God speaking through the created order was labeled natural revelation because it came through nature. And that seems like an appropriate topic until you stop and begin to think about it and realize, well, now hold on. It's God who's speaking to me, who's communicating to me through what he has made. And what he has made is nature. It's natural in that sense. But the God who's speaking is supernatural. And so that label is confusing. It's sort of like labeling your wife the little woman when actually she's the biggest lady in your life, love of your heart. 
and the one around whom uh, all your little electrons fly, and that's good. So natural revelation is a confusing term, and general revelation is better because it is less confusing. It's more accommodated to the way our mind works. On the other side of the the ledger, um, God speaking through the prophets and apostles was called supernatural revelation. And that's helpful. It is indeed supernatural, but of course, God speaks to us in human language. He carries along prophets and apostles of old, and they speak to us in human, real, created, natural language. And so that title isn't all that helpful either. General and special are the better designations because they reinforce for us, even in the terminology that's used, that there is a general dissemination of this first category of God speaking to us that happens for everyone who is in the created order, and that includes all human beings, and that there is a very special form of communication or revelation that comes, and it comes particularly to the people of God upon whom the special love of God is on, and that that that, that, that communication is there to teach them about his special covenant about his special relationship that he's establishing with them. He's speaking to his people about the way of salvation and calling them out of darkness into light. General and special revelation are are not the medieval terms. They're the more modern terms, but they're more helpful and less confusing. There are the means of of general revelation that it takes place through the world, through the created things themselves. And there's no better passage of Scripture to highlight this for us than Psalm 19. Psalm 19, a great creation psalm that humbles our hearts. Here we we hear the psalmist sing to us. We delight in hearing him talk about the works of God on the one hand and the Word of God on the other. Psalm Psalm 19 begins, For the choir director, a psalm of David. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them, He has placed a tent for the sun which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run its course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens. Its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. So here the Lord declares to us, just bluntly, that his created order is communicating. The heavens are telling or declaring the glory of God. And the expanse, the declaring the work of his hands. And that it pours forth speech continually, both when we're awake and when we're asleep, God is communicating through it to us about himself. And then he uses the illustration of a a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and going from one end of the uh, palace to the other. The sun comes forth and shines its rays, and all of this is an illustration of God shining forth knowledge of him upon everyone in the universe everyone on the earth. And then the text turns in verse 7. It turns to the Bible, and it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. 
The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And so there is a, an adoration of God, an appreciation of the fact that God has spoken specially to restore our souls. Things of salvation are spoken to us in this special revelation mode or way. The means of the general revelation is through the created order. And the means of the special revelation is through the prophets and apostles of old. But God, speaking through the means of creation, means that you can go and you can take your Mountain Dew and Doritos and ride out to the range and sit on the hood of your uh, 68 Chevy and you can watch that sun go down And you can enjoy yourself there and you can draw the theistic inference. There is a God. He is powerful. He makes a difference in this world. And He is my Creator and He's glorious. You can draw some basic conclusions from Him. And the Apostle Paul makes it fairly clear that this has been clearly seen by all of us. His grammar is absolutely emphatic. Uh, Those words can be denied and twisted and suppressed, but the grammar of them can't be undone. Paul is just in your face. He looks at Richard Dawkins and he says, Sir, I don't care that you have a a chair at Oxford. You know that I am, that God is. You know that, whether you deny it popularly or not, in your heart of hearts, late at night, right as you're going off to sleep, you know better than you teach, Sir. It has been clearly seen because God has been made, has made it evident within them. God is the one who communicates through this means. And what is the content of that revelation? The content of general revelation is that the knowable is revealed and the invisible is revealed. The eternal power of the Godhead is made known to us. If I uh, move back several slides, there we go, and I point you to the graphical description, the diagram of the Trinity there, you have the three persons in the one essence. It's something of the essence of the Godhead that's being communicated through the created order. His basic attributes of deity, and that he is the foundation of being, that he is the one who is all-knowing and all-powerful, that he is the one who is, in being almighty, is also the one who cannot be resisted by the will of men. He is sovereign. Basic things about what God is like are communicated to us through the created order. And men may confuse them and they may deny them, they may twist them and suppress them, but at the end of the day they know the content of the revelation through the created order is what God's like on that most basic level. That does not mean that you can go out and study microbiology and learn every detail of what God is like. You will not learn about His covenant of grace there. You will not find uh, hidden somewhere the glories in the created order, the glories of uh, uh, His Son the mediator between God and man. Uh, You won't find the Ordo Salutis uh, hidden inside of a seashell. 
You know, when, uh, when I was growing up in South Carolina, our family used to go to this very deserted island when I was young. I'm showing how old I am, called Hilton Head Island. There was almost nothing on the island. And then after it got crowded, we, there was somebody down our street who owned a little island called Kiowa, which eventually got bought up by an Arab sheikh and developed into this really posh kind of place. But I remember when there were only five little wooden shacks on the island and no one's, none of them had a lock. The, the key you got was the key to the padlock uh, with uh, holding the chain across the dirt road getting onto the island. Well, we used to go to the seashore, and, and our favorite thing was to eat uh, flounder and shrimp on the one hand and then to collect sand dollars on the other. You know, you go out just a little bit, and you feel around with your feet, and you, you pull up these kind of green-looking things, oversized silver dollar-looking kinds of things, and if you put them out in the sun, they, they have this nice uh, starry kind of symbol on them, and they're delightful, and then you're taught as a child, you know, if you break them open, angels come out. And I don't know what piece of them it was, a backbone or a supporting piece, but these little things that had wings on them, they looked like this. This was uh, some sort of religious thing almost, to break the sand dollar, and there were the little angels on the inside. And then we would, uh, we would go to the, uh, we would go out to find some food to cook, and, and there they would have postcards, you know. And there was uh, always at the coast of South Carolina the, the legend of the dogwood tree. And there in the flower of the dogwood tree was symbolized the, the cross of Christ and uh, the death of Jesus and the glories of it by some uh, fanciful poetic interpretation. And all of that's very nice and, and uh, very sentimental and just theologically not true at all. Um, you can't look at a dogwood tree or a dogwood flower and deduce the crucifixion of Jesus. Even less can you come to the conclusion that he paid for the sins of his people and that by trusting in him alone for our salvation, uh, we have life and fellowship with God forevermore. We, we can't know that by looking at that beautiful flower. The created order does not communicate salvation in that way. What it communicates is what God is like. And as fallen men and women and boys and girls, we, we see in the created order the glories of God and we do the same thing that our first father Adam did. We run and hide. It's overwhelming to us. It's too much for us. It lets us know actually that we are in need of a savior on some levels, that, that this God is great and we know we're not so great. And so we are left with this dilemma which is met only fully in Jesus Christ our Lord. God reveals himself through the created order, but the content of that revelation is the godness of the Godhead. And that's not unimportant. It's pre-evangelistic, but it's not unimportant. It's especially important for us, I think, in an age which has made God unimaginable and impossible. It's very important for us to point to the content of that revelation and see his goodness and his wisdom revealed in the created order. And there's also a perspicuity to that general revelation. Paul has given it to us. It has been clearly seen because God has made it evident within them, according to Romans 1, uh, verses 19 uh, through 21. And this clarity is so sharp. It's sharp enough clarity to our minds and hearts that God is morally just and right and holy to hold us responsible for that. That we know enough about him to know what we should be like and that we are guilty. Oh, God 
reveals. He doesn't just kind of hint around and hope we catch on. Um, He doesn't leave us cryptic little notes hoping that we'll fill in the rest. God communicates something to us clearly about what he is like. Calvin says, Our stupefaction is never so complete as to prevent us being dragged occasionally before the tribune of God. We are never so out of it, even in our sinful rebellion, as to not be dragged before God to give an account occasionally in our conscience and life. Men hold the truth. They know the truth on the one hand, and they know unrighteousness on the other. They resist that truth that they know, which is part of the reason some men have breakdowns, because they know that there's a God, and they feel the weight of that against their soul. And the most self endangering thing in all the universe is to resist that knowledge of God because it brings you fundamentally into question. And they suppress that truth. They don't like to face it. They don't like to deal with it. Just like my puppy, when she poos on the carpet, you take her little nose and stick it really close and she squirms and pulls away. She doesn't want to face it. That's what we are like. Men have failed to respond to that creational seed of religion in them and their fallen nature. And therefore, not one coherent belief in the sinfulness and rebellion of men has been based upon general revelation alone. There's a consequence to this general revelation, and that means that we're without excuse. There's really nothing we can say. We have knowledge, and therefore we have responsibility. Man's fundamental problem is not atheism. Man's fundamental problem is idolatry. We can find lots of other gods that we like to worship. Gods that we create in ourselves, in our minds, with our eyes and hands. We even take the good things of God and craft idols after them. Our Bardian friends say that God's wrath is justified because the revelation was clear even though we were all ignorant. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says these things have been clearly seen. God's general revelation, therefore, doesn't have a defect. It doesn't have flaws. There's nothing wrong with it. And even man, as a part of creation, it's not that we have a defect that stops the truth. Yes, we suppress it and we resist it, but we hold it in spite of ourselves, enough of it to be held guilty, and there is where the reality is. We're guilty before God. Now, general revelation is insufficient to lead us to salvation. It can lead us to despair. Sin did not make general revelation inadequate, though. It's not sin's fault. It's that God never designed it for any other purpose than communicating generally about his nature. Men could not have known that there was a forbidden tree in the garden unless God had spoken by special revelation concerning that. Our first father, Adam, 
had to have a special communication from God to know not to eat of the tree and so violate the terms of the covenant of works. And in the covenant of grace, salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, that's only known by special revelation, by his word to us in his son and his son's apostles and prophets. And so there's a connection between general and special revelation. The two go together like two peas in a pod. There's a glorious light that one sheds on the other. Special revelation doesn't make more sense than general revelation. They both make sense. They're both intelligible. General revelation, though, out in the created order, provides a wonderful point of contact. Did you know that there's no human being in all the world that you could ever meet? A neighbor, a friend, a relative, a child, a parent, a total stranger from the other side of the globe. You can meet anyone in all of human history and you have something in common with them. You can communicate with them about the created order and about God. That is, you can sit down with that person and have a conversation with them and you have something in common. You're not aliens to each other. You both know some basic things about God. Even with a Scientologist, they know some basic things about God, even if they deny it. And general revelation provides this context in which special revelation comes. The Lord has provided this for a purpose. That is, he wants us to argue with other people, to reason with them, uh, to persuade them, to to call them out, to to invite them in. Uh, He wants us to engage them, not to ignore them or have nothing to do with them. He's made each of us with a set of shared knowledge that we might communicate with each other, even as he's communicated with us. God is good to us in that way. And so general and special go together with general providing the framework. How is it that I can even begin to understand the Bible when it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, if I didn't know what the heavens and the earth were? God speaks to me through that created order to you. And so he helps me better understand his word of salvation. But special revelation, it's different. Special revelation has a very special content. It's a content that is a revealing of that mystery from of old, as the Bible calls it, the mysterion. Or in the Old Testament, the secret of the Lord. In Psalm 25, the psalmist sings to us about the secret of the Lord. Psalm 25 and verse 14, he says, The secret of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He will make them know His covenant. My eyes are continually towards the Lord, for He will pluck my feet out of the net. Here is David singing about the Lord rescuing him in terms of His covenant promises. God working his will of salvation in the world that he has created. And the secret that God is sharing progressively and in part with his people is this way of salvation that he himself is providing. It is good news to us that we're not alone, we're not abandoned in our sin and our misery, but God provides a way of escape. And this special content 
comes to us by special agents, prophets, apostles. But all of those are sent how? They're sent by the Son of God incarnate. Pours out His Holy Spirit from of old. He sent Moses. He sent Isaiah. He sent Obadiah. He sent Paul. He sent Peter, James, and John. And there is an address that's made in this content to a very special constituency. It's not just God shouting out in a forest or a field or in the far corner of the universe where no one can hear it. It's not even God just speaking to the Jews. It's God speaking to His people broadly construed. Yes, His Word resounds to the uttermost parts of the earth, but as far as these words of salvation go, the heart of the target is in the bride of His Son, those who've been appointed to salvation from of old. Oh, the Lord speaks to His people. And so in Romans, in Romans chapter 10 and verse 14, we read, How then shall they call upon Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? For just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. The prophet of old foretold it, and the apostle here is confirming it under inspiration of the Holy Spirit both, that God speaks to us. He gives a divine disclosure of His program of salvation, and He does that through His special agents that He sends, that we might know the truth in Jesus Christ our Lord, and we might be set free. Let's take a break. Back with you once again. And it's going to be back here for part two of our session this evening. Just as a sort of brief reminder, the purpose of the second part of our evenings here together is to give you a kind of chance to, to sort of talk through some of the things we've been thinking about here and to ask questions and to really kind of wrestle with some of these ideas and, and, and what they might mean for us uh, in sort of in a practical way. Not that what we do in the first half is impractical, that's not the point, but, but just to work through that can be very helpful. When we were together last, which was, of course, before Christmas, uh, we were talking through sort of, sort of the meaning of theology and, and why we pursue this, and, and we spent several sessions, in fact, on that topic. And I thought I might, by way of review, uh, simply start by asking this question, which we talked about a good bit, so hopefully this is just, you know, this is refreshing what is already in your minds. Why should we bother to study theology? Is there any good reason, or is this just sort of a hobby one pursues? Well, there is, of course, there is the commandment in Scripture to do it. Okay, so that seems pretty compelling, right? We, uh, now, of course, when we say theology, what do we usually mean by that term? If we're going to do it and we're commanded, we ought to know what it is, right? So what do we mean by theology? This is not a trick question. And if you say something stupid, we're not going to laugh at you or anything. 
literally, right? I mean, what's the? It comes from it comes from the Greek. It literally means the study, or almost in, in the old-fashioned sense of the term, the science of God, knowledge of God, learning of Him, and uh, and we see this in Scripture frequently. In fact, what I want to talk about this evening, this evening is sort of how do we know about God? And wait, that's what we've been talking about already. This is what Dr. Rankin has been addressing with us. If you were to have a copy of the Trinity Hymnal. Now, there happen to be a bunch in front of you, but you don't have to pull it out. I'm just going to point out something to you, which I'm sure most of you already know, but if not, in the back of the Trinity Hymnal, there's all sorts of cool things back there. Well, there's a copy of the Nicene Creed, there's all sorts of stuff. On page 847, the beginning of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's right there in your hymnal if you wanted to look at it. Does anybody know, off the top of your head, or because you're looking at it, because I told you what page it's on, What's the first chapter in the Westminster Confession of Faith? What's the subject of that first chapter? It's actually, it says right here even, Holy Scripture. Now, I have a suspicion that when the divines got together and and, and really put this all down in writing, they probably had good reasons for the things they did. I, I don't imagine that the order is random. I think the topics there are probably there in the order they're presented for a reason. So let me ask you, why might they have started with Scripture? If all, we're going to sort of, you understand, we're going to sort of systematically catalog the highlights of the faith. These are the things we confess, right? That's what it's called. These are the things we find most important. We want to, we're going to start with Scripture. Why do you think they would choose to start with Scripture? And in fact, that's part of what they say about it. It is the infallible Word of God. I don't mean this in a bad way, but so what? I think that's, that's exactly right. It's, 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 it's sort of how do we know what we know? Well, it happens to be revealed by God and his word. Jamie, we were going to say something along those lines. Exactly. How do we, exactly, where does this all come from? It, it's, it is our, you might say, our best way of, of knowing God, we can turn to his word. And what, we even use that language, right? It's his word. And why do we call it the word? Because he gave it to us. He spoke it. In fact, I don't want to put too sharp a point on it, but in the Gospel of John, in the very first chapter, what is Christ called? He is the word. He is, so in a way, this is revealing Christ. It is revealing God to us. Now, I say all this, but as Dr. Rankin just explained to us, it turns out Scripture is not the only way that we might come to know God. What is the other way? In fact, Calvin even has a term for this. He refers to the the duplex cognito, the two ways of understanding. He acknowledges there are two. So Scripture, certainly one. If I tell you this, you'll get it right away, of course. He calls this, of course, special revelation. What's the other kind? General revelation. Now, you've all just been through the lecture. You sat here. You heard the whole thing. Would somebody like to, in your own words, tell me, what do we mean by general revelation? That's a good way to put it. Take a look around, right? What does... Take a, maybe I should be maybe even more precise. Look at, at what? You could look at all, exactly. We could look at we could look at Adam. We could look at man. We could look at ourselves. 
What's the Bible say? We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We ourselves are proof that God is out there and is working and doing things, right? If you were to walk along a beach and find a pocket watch there in the sand, you pick that thing and brush it off, and you, you turn to your atheist friend and say, hey, uh, look at that. Isn't it amazing how chance and random circumstances produce this object right here in the sand? Your atheist friend, unless he's totally an idiot, might say something like, well, you know, obviously it's a pocket watch. Somebody dropped it. You know, somebody made that thing. It didn't just happen. If a pocket watch has, is sort of, you might say, proof of a creator, that watch didn't happen by accident, it itself is evidence of a creator, an acting thing, a, a designer, right? How much more so we ourselves? Are you not more complicated than a pocket watch? Even the best of pocket watches, you are far more complicated. You are far more evidence of the hands, the, the work of God, if you will. There's a couple of passages in Scripture which sort of point us in this direction. I've got to look at several here. We can look at them together. If you want to turn with me to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I want to read just a couple of verses here, starting in verse 20. These, all these passages are, are pointing to sort of the idea of the knowledge of God or, or different ways of understanding that at least. So here's what Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapter 1, verse 20, 1 Corinthians. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. You see the juxtaposition there of kind of our wisdom, which is foolish and not very good and, and leads us in the wrong direction, versus God's wisdom, which is right and correct. And you know, it, it is suggesting to us there is a knowledge of God or there is, there is knowledge that God in fact possesses that we ought to seek after as well. Not in the foolish way. The Jews demand a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. Not that kind. The real kind is kind of, there's an invitation embedded in those passages, in those couple of verses. Or if you want to, turn with me over to the book of Philippians. As you can see, Paul's kind of big on this. He's not the only one, but he's certainly helpful. Philippians chapter 3, we'll start maybe in verse 8. You know these verses, but, but think of them in, in, in the context in which we're talking about it here tonight. Verse 8 reads, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And look at these next couple of verses. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. You see, again there, Paul is making this, this connection between sort of knowledge of God and, and what actually our salvation, right? I mean, this, this is not just a small matter. This is not just a point of interest. Wouldn't it be neat to know a little something about God? Paul is suggesting that knowledge of God is connected to your very salvation. And not just any old knowledge, but you might say right knowledge or accurate knowledge or, or real wisdom, not the foolish wisdom of the age. So we come to know God, to recap, by general revelation and special revelation. If you wanted to do, some of you, if you've ever been through a public school, you know what a Venn diagram is, right? 
the content, you might say, of these two things, special revelation and general revelation, that which is revealed in each of these ways, there is overlap in a certain sense between them. Dr. Rankin mentioned this. Can you get a sense of God's power, God's creative power through the earth he made? Can you get a sense of that? I think so. I don't think that's, a, that's, that's kind of a softball I'm tossing out there. I hope you don't mind. Can you get a sense of that through Scripture? Of course, right? So you might say, in, in a certain sense, God has revealed his creative authority, his creative power, in two different ways, both in the special revelation and in the general revelation. What else can we begin to know through general revelation? Whatever comes to your mind, just throw that out there. What, what can we know through general revelation? God is a disciplined, orderly, rational God, isn't he? I mean, the, the world that he made is not chaotic. It, it is not random. It is not a, a sort of working out of chance and circumstances. It is orderly. It is rational. It makes sense. What else might we say about, what else can we know of God or learn through general revelation? This is actually an important one. Mrs. Hart mentions beauty. Does God care about beautiful things, do you think? This is a staggering creation he has made. And I've never, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Certainly we have sort of cultural standards of beauty and things sort of can be different from place to place. But there are just certain things. You know, if you go to the Alps and you look at that chain of mountains, nobody says, nah, I'm not very impressed. Not much there. Any human being has the same reaction when they see that majesty presented there. There's a beauty. There's a, there's a sublimity to God's creation. And you don't need special training. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter who your parents were. There's something that all humans have in common when it comes to, you might say, the eternal standards of beauty. Now, do we get off track? Do we get led astray? Do we? Certainly. This is the effects of, of sin in our world, right? But we can learn something of God's notion of beauty through his creation. How did he make it? He made it beautiful. Could you, could you imagine being that person, right? The first, the first European, of course, you know, the natives there, they've seen it. It's old hat for them, right? But could you imagine being the first guy not knowing it's going to be there and it's suddenly coming upon that? I mean, even now, we can't have that experience. You all see it for the first time at some point, right? But we all have a sense that it's there and we've heard good things about it. Imagine being the first person to cast your eyes fully unexpected. God is great. And you'll get a sense of that, really. I mean, you get that sense anyway, but imagine being that guy. We would all have that same reaction. There's nobody who's going to look at the Grand Canyon and think, whatever. Fire away. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, so this actually is getting to an important point here. What can we learn through general revelation? We can learn a lot. In fact, going back to, Bible, to the Bible here, look with me. Now, Dr. Rankin already pointed to, to one of these. Let's look together at, at, at the Psalms, the, the Psalms, and let's look at Psalm 19. You know it very well already. Don't mean to insult your intelligence or anything. 
But there's just some, there's some beautiful stuff here in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. I don't know if you've really thought through these words, right? You understand what the psalmist is saying here, though. Look at God's creation. What does God's creation tell you? It tells you something about him. Think of that pocket watch on the beach, right? Could you learn something about the person who designed and made that watch? You couldn't know his name or his social security number, unless he signed it and wrote that on there, I suppose. But, but you could learn something about who that person was and how he thought and what was important to him. I'm not saying you could get to know this person intimately because of his pocket watch that he made, but you could learn something of him. Well, this is kind of what the psalmist is saying about creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. Now, is there more to God's glory than what we see there? His glory is infinite, so I'm going to say yes. I'm going to go up and live and say yes. The skies proclaim his handiwork. This, this verse 2 is amazing to me. Day to day pours out speech. The passage of time, as it were, speaks. I don't usually think of time talking, but that's what the scripture says. Day to day pours out speech. It fills us with knowledge of God, as it were. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through the earth and their words to the end of the earth. Now, what's it telling us? It's telling us about God. You see what I'm getting at here? There's other places throughout the Psalms. Psalm 8 does the same thing. But I want to direct our attention for a moment. I hate to make you flip around so much. I do apologize. Let's go to the book of Romans. Because if you want to get a sense of the, the worth and the value of general revelation, there's no, I don't think, there's a, I don't think there's a better book than Romans, and especially the beginning, starting in chapter 1. Again, I know you know these passages. I'm not, I don't think I'm introducing to you anything you haven't heard before. <laughs> Raise your hand if you've not read Romans 1. I, even if you haven't, you're not going to admit it, right? But I want you to think of it in, in terms of special revelation versus general revelation and knowledge of God, right? It says here in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. There's a hint there that the, what's revealed? The wrath of God is revealed. So we, you know, we talk about some nice things. Apparently, maybe some not-so-pleasant things are also revealed. For Listen to this. Verse 19 is incredible. For what can be known about God is plain to them. It's not secret. It's not hard to figure out. What does Paul say? It's plain. We could translate that as obvious. People know this stuff. What is known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Now, you understand, he's not saying because they all read the Bible. He's, no, th- what God did, what he made, that's how they know. Going on, verse 20, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. You see the, the adjectives he uses? Clearly perceived. I don't, I don't know who you are. It's clear. You can get this. Not complicated. Clearly perceived. Ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. What did God do? He created. What did we learn from that? Well, we learn about his eternal power, his divine nature, his wrath is revealed. So they are, it says here, says Paul, they are without excuse. There's nobody who can say, well, gee, I don't have any idea. God made what? No, I haven't heard of this God you speak of. His creation shouts it at us every single day. It is clear for anybody. If you don't mind, I'm going to go on a few more passages, a few more verses, because I just love this, this paragraph. 
For although they knew God, you understand what he's saying here now, because he's, he's talking about sort of, you know, wicked sinners, horrible people, atheists, everybody you've ever heard of. For although they knew God, even though they swear they don't, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see where the idolatry comes from, right? We, we look to creation. Okay, and we're kind of moved by that. That's interesting. We make that the God. This is part of our sin nature, right? We're just looking for excuses not to worship the one true God. So we find something kind of neat that he made, and that's good. But now we make that the God and we worship it. We worship the creation rather than the creator. And if I could just um, jump ahead to chapter 2. Romans 2, we'll pick up in, in verse uh, 14. Again, you know these verses. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, right? So they don't have the, when he says the law, that's sort of, for him, that would be what we're calling here special revelation. They don't have the law. The Gentiles, you know, they weren't there at Sinai. God, Moses didn't hand them a book. There are no tablets for the Gentiles. The Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse them and even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. You see what he's saying there? We've just been saying it, and it's true. You want to learn something about God, you can look at what he has made. You can go to the Grand Canyon. You can stand at the foot of the Alps. You can, you can go to the mouth of the Amazon. These are incredible things. You can, you can dig down deep, right? You can look at how microbes interact. You can look in the heavens, the scripture says. But you know what? You need look no further than yourself. You, you see what, what Paul is saying here? The law is written on your heart. You don't, you, we do, right? But even if we didn't have the word presented to us. If we didn't have the scripture, we didn't have the special revelation in front of us so we could look at it right here tonight, we would still be accountable because nobody, Paul says, can deny God. He is in the very... And his law is written on your heart. So as long as you're with you, you are without excuse. Now, I don't know about you. This, I don't, this kind of gets me excited. I get all moved by this sort of thing. There's a problem in this, though. It takes us to kind of, in a sense, a kind of a, an interesting spot. So the law's written on my heart. I know God's out there. Uh, have, you ever, have you ever spoken to an atheist? I mean, a real hardcore atheist? I know some of you have heard me say this before. I'm amazed at how much atheists feel the need to deny God exists. Imagine if you spent all of your time, just think about this. I'm going to make a list of all the things I don't believe in. I'm going to go around and convince everybody they're not there. How long would the list of things that don't exist be? Think of everything that isn't. And now go around and tell everybody, make sure they know that isn't, this thing doesn't exist. That would be crazy. That would be stupid. It would be a foolish thing to do. I mean, there's, you know, in, in, in formal logic, there's an expression that says you, you can't prove a negative. That's a complicated way maybe of saying you could never exhaust the possibilities of things that don't exist and then proving that doesn't exist, nor does that, nor does that. You might be able to prove one or two, but it's an infinite list, right? 
You understand what I'm getting at here? So you could do that, but for whatever reason, the atheist picks God as the thing they really, really want to make sure you know doesn't exist. I know Santa Claus. I know Santa Claus doesn't exist, right? But you need to know God doesn't exist, says the atheist. He's worried about you. That's so compassionate of him. He's worried about you having a belief in this one thing. Now, he doesn't know whether you believe in a hundred other things that aren't there, but he's worried about your belief in God. Why, did, why, did, why does that happen? Why are they so concerned about God versus all the other things they think don't exist? I've never been stopped by an atheist and say, what about the unicorns? You've got to stop believing in unicorns. They never do that. But they're big on God. Big on not God. Why? Absolutely. This is, they're so attached because, as Paul is saying here, the law is written on their hearts too. It is clear. So it's clear to the most dedicated atheist you've ever met, the existence of God is clear to him. Put another way, he is well aware. Now, you might not get that from his words and his demeanor, right? No such thing as God. can't believe you waste your time with that. It's a crutch. You need your religion, you weak person, you... Okay, but we know you... We Understand, we know, they know. They might try to... Partly, they're convincing themselves. If they convince you, they want to reinforce in their own... No, there's really no God. I swear, I swear, I swear. <laughs> I love that term. You're right. That's a good point. Yeah, the, the company of, you know, the camaraderie of fellow atheists, all of us together denying what is clear. If I swear it's not true, and you swear it's not true, well, then by golly, it can't be true, right? Yeah, it's a certain God. Yeah. Yeah, you don't believe in Vishnu, do you? I mean, maybe it happens in India, I don't know. But you're right, certainly it's, it's, it's the Christian God who they're concerned about. Yeah. Exactly. You understand the point here. Where would this come from? You see what Paul is simply saying? It is everywhere. That's where it comes from. Why would, why would somebody feel the need to battle knowledge of God? Because the knowledge of God is everywhere. Creation itself shouts it to us. And so we can't... I might not want to be accountable for it, right? If, I, if, I'm, if I'm not under God's grace, well, then I'm against him, right? I don't want to hear about judgment. I don't want to hear about wrath or obligation or sin or any of these things. So I need to combat that somehow, right? But you see what Paul is saying here? It's just futile. Aside from the fact that, of course, you know, God is, he is omnipotent and he's his own creation, which includes you and I and everybody else, right? His own creation speaks it. And there's no avoiding it in that sense. It's tough to be an atheist these days. It really is. So I'm okay with all this because I look at this and I think, okay, so, you know, the creation speaks of God, it, it's, it's, it's so clear, as Paul says, that, that, that he is there, that not only that, but you know, his power is evident, his divine nature is obvious, his law is written on our hearts, now see, this is where it starts to get uncomfortable, his law might be written on my heart, but do I keep his law? Actually, just take a look at me, what do you think? Do you think, do you, really, do you think I keep his law very well? 
Thank you very much. That was very kind of you. <laughs> As you all know, none of us keep it really well, right? I'm sure there's a, you know, there's a continuum. Some of you look like you're very decent people. Others not so much. But, <laughs> but when it comes to sort of God's perfect righteousness, keeping all the law and us, there's a big enough gap for all of us. It doesn't really matter, right? So we're, we're all pretty far away from the standard. So the law's on our, written on our hearts. We know it's there. We know what it is. Maybe we can't articulate it in detail, but we know wrong. We know evil versus good. We know the difference. And we do these things. We're now under sin. We're under judgment, right? What does general revelation tell us about the remedy to God's wrath? You heard Dr. Rankin earlier. It doesn't really help us with that part. There's... You're not going to, you can look at the dogwood and, oh, I've heard that little stupid poem so many times, it drives me nuts. It's got the grass and the blood. Okay. That's cute. That's nice. But you can stare at dogwoods all day long. You're not going to get salvation out of it. The creation itself doesn't really do that. Say that again. Well, exactly. It could help you, yeah. If, you want, if, you're, if you're getting about salvation and how that works, you get a dogwood and it'll remind you. That's certainly true. But you have to have that knowledge from somewhere. And where is that? I don't mean to insult your intelligence. Where is the somewhere? Where do we gain knowledge of salvation? You need the word for that, right? You need scripture. There's, there's no other place to go. There's no other. Now, when I say scripture, that doesn't have to be a book opened up in front of you or even, God willing, a scroll that you unroll. And there's a, The word can be spoken, right? The word can be preached. And in fact... When Paul is writing these very words, the normal way that most people were receiving it was spoken. So he would, what, did we, he, what would he do? Everywhere, every town he went to, what would Paul do? He, he'd go to the synagogue where he knew people would be gathered. He'd preach the word. Why is it that when we come to church on Sunday, some of you to this very building, and we listen to Pastor Greco, what does he do? Does he tell us neat stories? Does he tell us about his week and the fun things he did? Maybe a motivational speech. Live your best life now. I don't think he says that. It's exactly. He is, he is preaching the word, right? He's, he's exposing to us. He's giving us the gospel. He's giving us special revelation. And frankly, any decent pastor, anywhere, any Sunday, or any Wednesday evening, or any other time, frankly, or when you witness to your friend, or to that stranger that you met on the plane, we're all doing the same thing. We're sharing the word. We're sharing that special revelation without which there is no salvation. We're about out of time, but I want to ask you a question here. Because what I'm just... Okay, so this part we've been talking about, I don't think this is very complicated. I think it's probably fairly clear, more or less. What would you say to somebody who says the following, though? We've been picking on atheists. Let's pick on a couple of Christians. If somebody were to say to you that everything a Christian needs to know can be found in the Bible, how would you respond or how, how would you evaluate that statement? Everything a Christian needs to know is found in the Bible. Yeah, in a certain sense, it's true, right? It's kind of a tricky question. What do you mean by need to know, right? So, right, everything you need to know for salvation absolutely is right there, right? Is it general revelation? Is it necessary? I would say maybe so, but 
Yeah, it might not matter. Do you feel as though you don't need general revelation? To, you understand, to get away from it, you'd have to separate from yourself. There's a, a great little um, uh, sort of depiction that R.C. Sproul gives in his, uh, his a teaching series called The Consequences of Ideas. He's talking about Thomas Aquinas, the great uh, theologian of the Middle Ages. And uh, Aquinas is often criticized by Protestants for separating special from general revelation, sort of natural versus, uh, you know, spiritual, divine things. He's accused of separating them. And, and R.C. says he doesn't separate them, he distinguishes them. So what's the difference? He says, for example, so you want to understand what I mean by separate, separate versus distinguish. If I distinguish your body from your soul, I've done you no harm. If I separate your body from your soul, I just killed you. It's an important distinction. Special revelation and general revelation both speak to who God is. So when we're commanded to know God, absolutely, of course, that's in Scripture, right? How would we even know where that command is there? It's revealed to us through special revelation. But that seems to impose upon us a mandate to go and understand him as much as we can, not just the minimum. Not just, I barely made it in the door. That's great. But, but what's our obligation now? It's to know God. And one of the ways we know God is through his creation itself. So it's true, in a sense, that this statement is accurate. Everything a Christian needs, yes, needs, can be found in the Bible. Certainly true. But is there more to know? Or, or, or can we come to have a, a closer, under, better understanding of God through his creation? It is certainly a beautiful thing if you can do that. We're about out of time, but I want to make sure, are there any questions anybody would like, to, or any appalling statements I've made you'd like to correct, or anything of that sort, before we wrap up for this evening? Mm-hmm. Very common notion in our culture today, sure. Yeah. No, I don't think so. I mean, it's it's of course it's a false statement to say where people are basically naturally good. I can tell you where that comes from even. We don't have time for that now, but there's an origin to that notion. It's not all that old, a couple hundred years at best. But that notion that we're good in circumstances or environment just gets in the way and makes us do bad things, that's been the cause of much evil in our culture, frankly. So how do we know then that we're not good by nature? Our hearts will tell us that, right? The law that's written on our hearts, and it's also in the Bible in case you're looking for another source, right? That law teaches us. We know that what we're doing, we know that we're wrong. We know that what we're doing is sin. We might not have a vocabulary for it. We might not know what to call the, you know, that's adultery, that's, you know, whatever. But we know what's wrong and we know what's right. Now, we just do things differently sometimes. But it's not, it's not lack of knowledge. It's not ignorance that causes that or circumstances or environment. It's our own will. I don't know if that helps or not. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Yeah, somebody else is God. Like your creator, for example. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's right. So you're right. That that, that pride gets in the way. But again, it's not, it's not ignorance, is it? It's not that we don't know. We, we're fully aware. That's not the issue. It's that we know and we don't like it. That's right. If I came from the most remote culture on earth, you know, speaking some strange language with clicks in it, I would still not like being punched in the nose. I would know there's something wrong with that. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can't really wrap our minds around that. No. I've been trying to work on the concept of a trillion, as in, you know, one sixteenth of the national debt, and I can't even get to that, let alone an infinite God. Those coins, yeah, a couple of those, and we'll be set. Yeah. Gotta get change for this. You, you had your hand up. You looking for one of those coins too? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. It wouldn't take long, right? We don't need an hour-long interview to figure it out. Two or three questions and we're there. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you're right. It is a common human experience. And yet, through our pride, we deny it. But that doesn't make it untrue. It doesn't make us ignorant of the fact. Special revelation and general revelation, are, they're still, they still apply. Yeah. Oh, it's quite common. Yeah. 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 I, you know, I got to take. I'm going to take the Bible at its at, at face value. I'm sure the law is written on on everybody's heart, not just mine, not just yours. Even Muslims, go figure. Uh, now, what becomes of that, you're right, in a lifetime of sort of, you know, having it beaten out of you or, you know, deny, 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 uh, lying might come quite easily then, but still wouldn't change the fact that your conscience tells you it's wrong. And, and bottom line, you're accountable for your sin, and God's not going to accept as an answer, oh, I didn't realize lying was a problem. In my culture, we do it all the time. Still going to hell. I mean that in the best possible way. We should probably stop here. In fact, we should have stopped a long time ago. But I appreciate your time tonight and look forward to seeing you again in a couple of weeks.